Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. On the Bravery Academy this week, I'm joined by Chris Romolo, a retired pro Muay Thai champion, to share his story of adversity and empowerment and how you can learn, even at a young age, to find the champion inside you. His story of resilience and adversity has got some beautiful messages, learning how to fight to survive and how those moments of adversity and bravery can truly change us. Welcome, Chris. I am so excited to have you on the Bravery Academy today. Thank you, Emma. Thanks for having me here. This is the first time I'm having a podcast with somebody in New Zealand, so it is awesome. The bottom of the world. That's where I'm based right now. Yeah. Tell me about where you're from. Yeah, sure. So I am originally from New York City, uh, born and raised, um, Queens, actually. And I lived there up until about a few years ago. I turned 47. And now I'm in New Jersey with my family. So not just one state over from New York, mm-hmm. but completely different. I mean, I born and raised in the city and now I'm actually living by a lake and I'm in the woods. So so why the change? Well, actually, the change uh, was kind of not forced, but my wife and I, we owned a gym in Queens for close to 10 years. And unfortunately, because of the strains of pandemic, we weren't able to keep our gym open. So we shut down and we moved out here to New Jersey, which is only about maybe 50 miles from New York. And, you know, now we're closer to my my wife's family, which as they get older, they need our assistance and we want to be there for them. So it was twofold, I guess, right? We were kind of forced into it, but it, it was just the right timing for us to be around for my in-laws. You know, before I moved, I've never lived anywhere else but New York City. So, you know, city boy, well, it was a, a bit of a change, but I wish I would have done it earlier in life. You know, it's it's just amazing to be out here in New Jersey on a lake and like literally short, surrounded by trees. So it was uh, quite a bit of a change, but a refreshing change, I would say. So tell me about your life growing up in New York, because 
it's it's catapulted you from what I've heard to be this, I know retired, but you've obviously been a Mai Tai champion in your life. And that's been a really big part of what I want to talk about today is this response to fighting in your life and how that's been a good thing. It's challenged you. It's definitely crafted you into the human you are today. So tell me what it was like growing up in Queens. So growing up in Queens, my parents are immigrants from the Philippines and Unfortunately, there were there was a lot of uh, dysfunction in the household. My dad was and and still is a gambling addict, and that left us, you know, as a family to fend for ourselves. You know, my dad would pretty much sit at the kitchen table when he wasn't at work. He would sit at the kitchen table from you know from when the sun came up until the sun went down, and never really you know paid attention to the family. You know, and it was a a, a tough tough upbringing. You know, I made a lot of choices that probably didn't uh, lead me in the right direction at first. And I was also one of the few Filipino American kids in my neighborhood. So that meant a lot of, you know, bullying, all right, in school and, and in the neighborhood. So I faced a lot of challenges. And again, I made some decisions that weren't the best. But I can say I can look back on it now and, and say it was a blessing because, you know, I, I wouldn't be at this point in my life where I was able to say, okay, I, I've got to make a decision. Do I keep rebelling and self-destructing or should I choose another path that can bring me towards what I want in life, what everybody wants in life, which is just happiness, right? I would say the best description was being lost. You know, I, I wish I would have had somebody to go to to ask, like, all right, how do I deal with this challenge of being called names and, and being picked on physically? But, uh, you know, it, it was scary. Scary. And yeah, I, I would say I grew up around a lot of fear in my life and just being lost. It was uh, a challenging time. And you know, in New York City at the time, this was during the 80s and the 90s. So the crack era was pretty predominant. Not only was it just whatever was going on in school and what was going on at home, there was actually, you know, violence in the streets. At the time, I thought of it as the world is falling apart around, you know. But, you know, luckily I was able to stay safe and find a way out. So you were constantly in the state of survival in your life and your upbringing. Yeah, that, that is definitely a, a good way to put it, survival and figuring things out as you went along. And, you know, I, luckily I, I did have a small group of friends and we stuck together and we did the best that we could. But, you know, there's this song that I remember growing up, a hip hop song that we were just products of our environment, you know, and it's challenging when, you know, as a kid, you don't realize that there's a whole nother world out there, yes. right? Yeah, there's a whole nother world out there that isn't living the way you grew up. And there are positive things going on in life when, you know, all this negativity is going on around you. And again, luckily at about 15 years old, I finally, you know, made it out of the neighborhood for a brief moment. One of my cousins was getting married in uh, Austria. And my mom, yeah. And my mom asked me if I wanted to, uh, you know, go to this wedding. And it was just going to be me heading out alone on this plane out of New York City for the first time in my life. And that definitely opened up my world. You know, the fact that I, I went to a country where people were at the time weren't really speaking too much English and I was just blown away. 
yeah, I was blown away. So I think that was a, a good turning point in my life where I realized there is a whole nother world outside of what I was growing up with. How did that transport you then through to fighting? Like what came through to drive you to that? So, yeah. So even though I was blessed to have 15 years old to open up my world, just being in Austria, it was just amazing. But at that time, also, I made the decision to unfortunately start drinking alcohol because of everything that was going on at home and the things that were going on in my neighborhood in the school. I thought, you know, I, I saw people around me drinking and thinking, oh, wow, they're happy. Maybe if I do the same, I can be happy, right? But it actually didn't turn out. It didn't pan out the way I thought it was. You know, I became very belligerent, a lot more angry than I was when I was sober. And for years, I was abusing, you know, alcohol in my neighborhood and I had experimented with other things. And unfortunately, 20 or 21 years old, I found myself in a street fight, right? I got myself into some trouble that I could have avoided, but my ego got the best of me. Right. So I confronted this local neighborhood tough guy and I wanted to be the local neighborhood tough guy. And we went at it, you know, literally in the middle of a very busy street in Queens. And if not for somebody who was there to save me, this, this kid probably could have beat me to death if he wanted to. But luckily again, I was able to walk away from that and say, all right, this is not the life I want to live. Right. This, this doesn't make sense for me. I started changing the way I was thinking. Right. I changed my self talk. I said, I don't have to be a product of my environment. I don't have to let the hardships that I'm facing at home or in the neighborhood hold me down. I'm, I'm going to do something to reverse that. I'm going to flip the script on my life and, and change that. And that's literally what led me to Muay Thai because as a kid, I was involved in Taekwondo. I would say from eight years old to about 15. And I gave up on martial arts at about 15. And then when I got into the street fight, I literally soul searched. I was like, okay, what was helping me as a kid, as a youth? And that was martial arts. So I said, okay, how can I get back to that feeling of me feeling like I'm building myself mentally and physically? So what I started to do after that street fight was I started cruising through the martial arts magazines, you know, this or the internet and YouTube and stuff like that, obviously. And flipping through this martial arts magazine, I came across this full page ad and the full page ad said, become unbeatable, right? That was the title, something like that. And it was basically an ad for a Navy SEAL who was teaching a hand-to-hand combat course through a VHS tape series. So, I mean, this title, like, literally called me. I was like, I don't want to ever, you know, risk my life again. Not that I wanted to keep fighting in the street, but I was like, I don't ever want to feel helpless again like that. I don't want to feel incapable of protecting myself. So I ordered these VHS tapes. I had them sent to my mom's house. And I just remember watching them. And I would get my brother to, like, practice the moves with me. And there was moves like jujitsu moves. There were, you know, stick fighting moves, right? Yeah. And But what really stood out to me was the Muay Thai because his training partner would hold these pads. Well, I didn't know what they were called at first, but they're Muay Thai pads. 
And he would punch and kick and elbow and knee without any gloves on. And he was showing how you can use all of the built-in tools of your body as weapons to defend yourself in a life or death situation. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And from that moment on, you know, coming across those VHS tapes, like it, it literally, like I said, flipped the script for me. I changed my whole life and I dedicated every waking moment to learning this martial art from that moment on. How old were you then? I would say 20, 21. So this is obviously after high school. I was working, but I didn't have any directions. I didn't have any aspirations in life. And literally this tape series gave me some aspiration. But I love hearing because I'm, a, I'm really pro-fighting. That sounds really bad to say. I'm really pro-learning about a martial art. And mm. I think that's because we all should learn this at certain times of our lives. But if we learn it in our youth, even like that, that awareness you had around, oh my goodness, Taekwondo was something that gave me the discipline, the learning to listen in, the control, the power. And what I know from my experience as a physio, but also as a stress resilience coach, is if we learn how to use that fight response, that can help us be unstuck. And what I'm hearing mm. from your experience was your emotions were really not been able to be processed at all. In that stage, how were you feeling? Yeah, that's very interesting. You mentioned emotions, right? Because as a boy growing up in New York City, you're taught to push down your emotions, especially back in the 80s and the 90s. You're not supposed to show your feelings or your emotions. But yeah, absolutely. What I say I was being controlled by were feelings and emotions. And I call those feelings and emotions the dictators. And there's seven of them that control us. I call them self-doubt, fear, disappointment, hardship, confusion, our ego. And then going back to what I was saying earlier, our self-talk. Our self-talk, you know, can dictate our lives, whether it's positive or negative. So I would say, yeah, absolutely. As a kid, I, I was not aware of the dictators and I absolutely had no clue how to manage them. So then how did learning Muay, Muay Thai transform your life? Well, first off, I would say I met a mentor, a guide, you know, for so many years Growing up in a household without a father figure, I spent a lot of my childhood trying to find somebody. I, and, and I actually did come across Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was a mentor for me at one point in my life, even though I never met the guy. He actually passed away one year before I was born. So coming across his readings, you know, his books and some of his videos and interviews on, obviously YouTube wasn't around, but just seeing stuff on TV at the time. He was one of my first mentors coming across Muay Thai and actually finding the gym eventually after coming across these VHS tapes. Literally, it was the mid-90s. I was walking through Manhattan on the Bowery, which at the time was a really rough neighborhood. It's definitely cleaned up a lot now, but I was walking by this storefront. And I remember just kind of, you know, scanning and looking into the storefront and I saw what I thought was a heavy bag hanging in the middle of this dark, kind of grimy storefront. I kept walking and I was like, oh, okay, maybe that was just my imagination. But then I was like, no, I got to check this out. So I turned back around. And as I walked back the second time, I noticed there was like a makeshift on a boxing ring, but it wasn't put together. Like the ropes were hanging off of the ring post. And I was like, wow. This is like a, a boxing gym. And I was like, I've never been in a boxing gym. 
And I was actually kind of scared. I was like, I don't want to go in there. I don't know anything about boxing. So I walked by that second time and I was like, I couldn't resist it. So I came back a third time and I literally walked into this place and I'm, I met the manager of the gym and he told me that they were going to have an instructor coming in in the next couple of weeks who was going to teach Muay Thai. I didn't know of it as Muay Thai. I knew of it as Thai boxing from the VHS tapes. And I was like, is that like when you kick and punch and knee and elbow? He's like, yeah, exactly. So I was like, all right, I'll be here. And when I showed up, I met my first Thai trainer. His name was Tommy Thai, and he was an ex-fighter from Thailand. And he opened up his heart and his mind to me and a couple other guys that were training at the time. And a few of those guys were actually... You know, interestingly enough, from backgrounds that were similar to mine, guys that didn't have dads in their lives and they were just looking for something. And we found it and it was just from that moment on, he was my mentor, Tommy. Place of belonging sounds what you found when you walked past that street. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just so uh, I like to think of it as a, a sacred place, you know, found this sacred place. Kind of like when I was a kid, I, I used my mom's garage as a sacred place, like a place for working out. I would do pull-ups and push-ups and hit the heavy bag when I was a kid. And that saved me from the bullying at school and also what was going on inside the house. I didn't want to be in the house. So I found this sacred spot for me to build, not just physically. At the time, I thought it was just physical training. I thought I was, All right, I'm just going to get strong. But what I learned is that it was more mental and spiritual than anything. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. I 
then how did that take you from walking past that shop to being Muay Thai champion? How do you go from that to that? So, yeah, I mean, that is definitely a long road, but <laughs> it, so from when I met Tommy for the first time, literally three months after that, or, or within the three months that we were training, he asked me, like, do you want to test your skills? Do you want to jump in the ring and, and fight? And I was like, you mean fight without getting in trouble? He was like, yeah, like take your skills and, and use them. And, and he didn't say this in that way, but thinking about it, it's like, use your skills in a constructive way. Instead of trying to get in trouble in the streets and try to prove that you're a tough guy in the street, why not take your emotions and your skills and bring them into the ring and, and do it in a way that can build you up? And I was like, yes, I want to do that. So he trained us, you know, me and my training partners for our first bouts. This was back in New York when there weren't a lot of opportunities for Muay Thai fighting, but there was one opportunity and I won my first fight by TKO. And literally from that experience on, I was hooked on the sport of Muay Thai, the culture of it, the mentorship of it coming from my trainer. And that put me on a journey of, okay, not as a professional yet, how can I keep doing this? How can I keep building myself up? And I took that to a level in the amateurs where I won a state title, a couple of national titles, and that brought me to the world championships in Thailand in 2004, where again, I, I left the country one of the few times I did, I went to Thailand, I went to Bangkok, and I was able to represent Team USA and, you know, interestingly enough, battle an Australian and a, a Belgian to win a bronze medal back in 2004. What did that feel like? I mean, it's hard to describe, to just, you know, be the scared, lost kid at one point in your life and to take this journey and build yourself up and get to that point where you're able to compete on a level that you're battling against the world. And you're just like, I came from Queens. I, I, I should have been a statistic the way things were going at one point in my life. You know, well, I should have wound up dead or in jail. Yeah. But to stand there and, and get this bronze medal and say, all right, I, I, I battled the odds. You know, not just in the ring, but I battle the odds of life. How did your family respond with this? You know, my mom, again, she's an immigrant from the Philippines. She was obviously happy for me, but in the Philippines, fighting, it's frowned upon, right? It's not encouraged and competitive fighting. It's not looked at as a viable way to create a life for yourself. So for a long time, my mom, she didn't really understand but eventually she started to see how much passion and love that I was putting into it and how it was changing me as a son, you know, literally because I brought a lot of pain to my family as a young kid, getting in trouble, getting arrested, being drunk out in the street and my mom sitting home wondering if I would ever make it home at, at points in my life. So to turn all that pain into something constructive, you know, it, it took a while, but she was like, I'm proud of you, you know, so I felt great. 
Huge, huge to hear that, to feel that. Yeah, absolutely. And then where did you go from 2004 then? How did that transform to keeping that career going? So in 2004, I remember going to Thailand and training at a gym for six weeks and competing for a week in Bangkok. You know, during this whole transition, I was like, I'm going to use this as a way to gauge if I can take this to the professional level. And being able to train in the Mecca, you know, of the sport in Thailand and work with some of the best fighters from all over the world, you know, from England and Thailand and France and things like that. I was like, all right, if I could train with these guys and then compete on an international level and Unfortunately for me, not winning gold, but like at least saying, okay, I, I'm, I, I was part of the top three. Like, all right, I can do this now. I can take this to the next level and I'm going to go pro. I'm going to come home and go pro. Uh, interesting enough, I, when I got back to the United States, me and my coach and my promoter, we said, okay, we're going to take a couple more amateur fights just to make sure. And coming back from Thailand, I'll admit I had a chip on my shoulder, right? I was like, okay, I've competed with the best. And so my ego was getting the best of me. So this amateur fight that I took coming back was against some no-name guy from Colorado. And I was like, all right, I'm not worried about this guy. I've seen it all. I've been on an international level. So not that I didn't train, but there were probably things that I skipped on in training that I could have done, but I didn't. Because I was like, okay, I got this. I just got back from Thailand. I'm a tough guy. And so this fight happens. uh, And literally, I got stopped in the second round. Because this guy clobbered me from the opening bell. And I didn't expect it. And it it set me back. I, I would say it set me back because I was like, okay. Realizing that I took this fight lightly. I was like, okay. I'm not ready to turn pro because my mental game is not intact. So I took a couple more fights and eventually I went pro in 2005 or 2006. And how did that transform your life going pro? Well, Muay Thai is not a sport where there's a lot of money involved. You're not making a lot of money. So the way it changed my life was I I figured, all right, I need to find a way to supplement the income as a professional Muay Thai fighter. And at the time, I was just working odd jobs. You know, I was actually a a light bulb changer in some Park Avenue building in New York City. And I literally sitting in the basement of this, you know, high rise building, I had a light bulb moment. You know, I was like, I've got to find a way to open up my my schedule. I can't work a nine to five and try to train like a professional and move up the ranks. So I decided, okay, I'm going to become a personal trainer. So I literally, I quit this job. I found a gym where they were going to hire me as a entry level personal trainer. And I was like, okay, I'm going to make this jump. It's scary, but I need this for my life. That was literally The first day I started this personal training gig in New York City, it was the day that uh, the Towers came down on 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on the train heading into the city, 
and I was stuck on the ground for a good hour. And obviously, we had no clue being on the ground what was going on. And I remember thinking, like, man, this is, you know, as an angry New Yorker, I'm like, this sucks. This is terrible. Like, what what could be happening that we're stuck on the ground for this long, not knowing what's going on above ground? And then eventually, when I got to my station, literally ran up the stairs because that was late, obviously, for the first day on the job. And running through the gym, you know, I could see on the screens, you know, one of the towers still burning. And I remember thinking to myself, I was, wow, that's a terrible commercial, right? Not knowing what was going on. It was uh, actually the first day of training. So it was a classroom environment. So when I got to the classroom, you know, as soon as I sat down and obviously apologized for being late, that we're stuck on the trains, the proctor of the training said, if anybody needs to call their family and find out if they're okay, because of what happened downtown, you know, what happened at the Twin Towers, you know, you can do that. And I was like, well, okay, this is real. This is not just a commercial. Something big is happening right now. So obviously huge, not just big, you know, something huge is happening in New York City and the world. Talk about being scared again, like what a scary time in the world. Not, again, not just New York, I'm just, yeah, the whole world was affected by what happened on 9-11, 2001. It's just a reminder, you know, when I go out to youth empowerment talks at these schools and in, in, in the area, I do my best to remind them and share with these kids that this is what life is about. Like the things are going to happen that we have no control over, right? But it's up to us as human beings on how to respond, how to deal with our feelings and emotions so that we can you know, uprise and prevail against these these dictators that try to control us, the, the inner dictators, right? Yeah. And the situations. What I've loved about your story is that going from feeling so alone and lost and that young child there to then now being back in and helping youth, and that's a big part of what you do now. So tell me about how going from that Muay Thai experience to then been going into schools now and working with the youth has transformed the way that you look at the world and what you teach them? Yeah, so I retired from fighting in 2011, and I actually opened up my gym with my wife in 2010. We opened up our gym in an at-risk community on purpose because I wanted to give back in some way, you know, because Muay Thai had brought so much to me. I wanted to give back by giving this at-risk community a way out, so to speak, for some of these kids. But since then is when I said, okay, how, how else can I get back? You know, other than just teaching art of Muay Thai, which is great, you know, but realizing that it's not always about fighting physically, but it is about the internal fight. And that's one huge thing I learned that being a martial artist, and I'm sure you've experienced that yourself in training in jujitsu, that it is, it's all, it's all in here, right? Physically, yeah, you want to be strong, flexible, you want to have endurance, but none of that happens if you don't set it in your mind first. So that's what set off the public speaking, which is probably even scarier than fighting, if anything. <laughs> I remember that, I remember that being, really scary. One of my first talks, like I, 
I remember standing backstage thinking to myself, like, man, I'd rather be fighting right now. I'd rather be standing backstage ready to get kicked and punched instead of, you know, standing in front of a bunch of kids and trying to tell a story. Back then, I was working for like an anti-bully organization as well and helping kids who might be facing what I was facing when I was a kid. So martial arts is about passing on what you learn. That's the only way martial arts is survived for these hundreds or thousands of years in a holistic way, mind, body, and spirit. Absolutely. So, My experience from learning martial arts was when I was 37. And, and again, I'm absolute white belt. And the reason why I did it was because of my own stress experience, my own trauma around surviving uh, dating a con man. And for me, while it wasn't physical abuse, the emotional and mental abuse, I needed to figure out a way of getting that energy out of my body and to feel safe around men and safe around people and being in my space. So learning a martial art was actually really healing for me as well. And I learned that my fight response had to be able to be released in a controlled environment. And that, that it taught me so much. So I'm not training currently. It doesn't say I won't get back there. But what it taught me was I, I wish I'd actually learned a martial art in my youth. I think I would have been dangerous. <laughs> That's more of what I'm saying. <laughs> no. I was just going to say, dangerous is good. You want to have a, an ounce of danger in you. you know? Yeah. I have a fight in me that comes through my other sports that I played. And what I realized is that while many of us don't get given that mentorship, and I wasn't probably given as much mentorship in my sporting career, I could have gone a lot further in a few different areas if I was, really it does come to having those people that are they've got your hands on your shoulders and walking forward with you. That mentorship, that commitment, that leadership really is what changed my life in lots of ways. And if I even just go back to the leadership that was shown in that martial arts gym and the jiu-jitsu gym that I went to at 37, my children now go there and they... Only because I did jiu-jitsu have they done jiu-jitsu and then some of their friends have done jiu-jitsu. And I'm like, this is a really cool ripple effect out because I know the power of them learning to control their, their, not control their emotions to forget them, but to allow them to feel them, to experience them. And they did their first fight uh, in a comp setting about three weeks ago. Oh my goodness. Talk about stressful experiences. Your mother sitting on the sideline. And then suddenly one, they're both like rolling at the same time. And I remember thinking, oh, oh my goodness, I don't, I just want them to be safe. And here I am pushing them into this environment where they are like fully <laughs> like rolling around with people. And well, I was not so proud. Technically not safe, right? Yeah. But so not safe. safe. <laughs> it's so, so safe, but not safe. And so for them, yeah. this experience of stepping into challenge and adversity, I think we've got very, very comfortable in our world and we, we cotton wool. We stay in our safety zone because we don't want to be hurt. But actually, this is what I think. It, you've got to learn to fight in your own way and to release because our body's got energy, right? We've got this energy that flows through us. And learning something like jiu-jitsu or going to the gym or moving your body, you're actually allowing energy to flow. And if it stays stagnant, that's when it sets up that mind and emotions for that kind of downward spiral. I may get back to jiu-jitsu, but even for that slice of time, learning a martial art and learning that place of control. And as a breathing coach, my goodness, did my breathing get tested doing the rolling and endurance. And I was really grateful about that because the more that I work with people, I see that we get stuck in the survival response and we don't know how to move through. And obviously that's not going to mean everybody wants to go and roll that with somebody on the ground or learn Muay Thai. 
but you've got to find your way of letting that energy, the emotions out in a safe way. Absolutely, I absolutely agree. A constructive way. You know, I, I like to think of it as we all have this energy in us. That same energy that you had for jujitsu or that I had for Muay Thai, it could have completely been drugs, alcohol, you know, pornography, whatever, yep. whatever else that is destructive. You know, the whole mind, body, spirit connection is forgot about a lot. Tell me about how this has changed you as a father, because I know you're a dad as well. Well, I remember as a kid, I was about eight years old when I realized my dad was giving up on the family, that he was completely, you know, detached emotionally. I mean, physically, he was in the household, but emotionally and verbally, he was detached. But I remember telling myself at eight, eight years old, I was like, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to find a way to make a name for the Romulo family. I didn't know how, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I remember, you know, going back to self-talk. I remember saying that to myself. That was a, a clear thought that I've held on to for a long time, you know, since, since that day. So I would say the way it's changed me is that I know I've reversed the cycle of fatherhood in my family because my first born son who was born when I was 23, I, I've gave my heart and soul to him to make sure that I didn't do what my dad did. And now even my son, he just turned 12, my second son, I do everything in my power to show up to his games. You know, if I'm not obviously working or something, but I show up to his games and show up to his swim meets and show up to his school or drop him off at the school bus. And I would say Maybe that wouldn't have been possible if I didn't go through what I went through as a kid, because I know now I'm always proactive as a dad and as a husband, you know, because not only did me and my brothers suffer, my mom suffered a lot, the toxicity that was going on in our household. I would say I am aware and purposeful on a daily basis of not letting that vicious cycle keep going on, because from what I heard, I never met my grandfather, but my grandfather was back in the Philippines, was unfortunately also a gambling addict, and he gambled the family house away back in the Philippines. So I, I know I've done everything that I possibly could to not let that cycle keep you know going. Circuit break that generation is an amazing achievement, an amazing yeah, achievement. Circuit break. You brought up a term earlier, and this is been a, a part of my self-healing and my self-recovery over the past few years, uh, trauma. Yeah. And I, I think of it as, as father trauma. And that is still a process that I'm involved in. You know, I, I talk to a therapist weekly. I joined a, a program, which I came across by mistake, actually. I was researching organizations and youth conferences that I would like to speak at. And I came across this organization, but it's basically adult children of alcoholics or dysfunctional families. I literally was amazed that something like this existed. I had no clue. I, I wouldn't say that I've recovered completely from the trauma that I grew up with by any means. I know there's a lot more that I could do because there's obviously deficiencies in myself as a human being and maybe as a father or a husband. And I want to make sure that I'm proactive on 
doing whatever I can to stay on this healing journey. So yeah, I've been to about six or seven meetings now, and it's just opened my world up to other ways to recover and become a better being. I love that because you've used the physical element so much to do it. Your mind, you've had to be so strong on the way that you talk to yourself. And now it sounds like you're really coming down to the heart and the emotions and healing that. Yeah, I, I like to think of it as a, a spiritual journey. So what are you doing now? What does life look like for you as you're like we're talking about the giving back? Yeah, so over the last school year here in, in the United States, I spoke at 55 schools. So I did 55 presentations of what I call uh, Champions Uprising, right? Champions Uprising is a memoir that I wrote back in 2017, but it's a mission that I believe we're all on, not just the kids, but we're, we're all champions and we're all uprising against these seven dictators. So I went to these schools shared my story of how many times I've failed in life and been set back, you know, the disappointments and the hardships, but proving to them that you're not defined by your disappointments and your hardships, that you can figure out another way to grow and evolve, no matter what. It's not a matter of if life is going to knock us down, it's a matter of when, and then what are we going to do to pick ourselves back up? So. Yeah, that is the mission now. It's been a great introspective journey of soul searching and figuring out, okay, what's going to be my next mission? And that's it, being a youth empowerment specialist, I like to think of myself. Well, I look at that as well as what you're really sharing is the challenge response to stress for, mm -hmm. for children, to know that how you show up in that experience will actually change the way that your brain and your chemicals are released in the body. And as a stress resilience coach, I'm like, that's amazing. Victor Frankl, the last of our human freedom, has the power to choose. And that, yeah, if anything, if you can equip a kid with that early on in life, imagine, imagine what a kid can do with that kind of power. I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing. I think it is a real pleasure to have spoken to you today, Chris. If people want to know more about you, you've got your amazing book, Champions Uprising. I know that you also run a podcast with your wife. I really appreciate it. I was really enjoying your episode actually on father trauma and the way that you described it. And again, your honesty and vulnerability is helping others, I'm sure, see that there is an other way forward. Well, thank you, Emma. I really enjoyed this conversation and you brought a lot out of me. So I appreciate that. Thank you. No problems. If anybody wants to get to know you, talk to you, where do they find you? So you can go to my website, chrisromulo.com. Actually, I, I just put together a quiz. So it's uh, chrisromulo.com slash quiz. And it's a quiz that you can take to find out, you know, what your champion archetype is. And, yeah. So yeah, there's, I believe there's three champion archetypes, the awakened champion, the tenacious champion, or the empowered champion. So definitely, uh, yeah, you can go to my website. Uh, I'm on Instagram, chris.romulo.com. So great. I'll be taking that quiz and I'll pop it in the show notes. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate your time. I hope you have a magical day. Thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for joining me on the Bravery Academy. And if you want to learn a bit more about what I do, you can go to www.thebreatheffect.com. 
And this is where I will share with you how you can work with me in my one-on-one coaching, my group coaching, join me on retreat, or whatever you're needing right now to help move you into that state of thriving. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. We love to hear from you. You can also check out Conning the Con, which is my original podcast created with my sister, Sarah, who is also the epic editor in the Bravery Academy.